Welcome to Mastering Agility. If you want to listen to authentic conversations with the most inspiring guests, find like-minded people in the Mastering Agility Discord community or both online and face-to-face events, this is the platform for you. Grab a drink, sit back, and join professional scrum trainers Sandra Dorr, Jim Sammons, and their guests in an all-new episode. Arthur, welcome back, dude. Hi, super happy to be here. Likewise, good to have you. It's been three years. Um, we're celebrating the release of your book. How are you feeling about it? I'm feeling really happy. Like the initial feedback has been positive, and yeah, um, I wasn't expecting such a po- yeah positive release. Let's put it that way. Why not? What I were you? I'm like a doomsday kind of person, you know? I just thinking like you write a book and nobody cares. That's kind of the thoughts that you have. It doesn't seem to be the case. So that's what I'm super happy about. Why? Because you've been building up quite a bit on LinkedIn and other platforms, releasing little chunks and gathering feedback um, incrementally, iteratively. The, The responses to those little nuggets were pretty enthusiastic to keep it very mild. So then why the temperate expectations? just my personality, like a little bully on my shoulder that says it's never good enough. <laughs> How did it support you in the whole process of building and writing the book? Uh, I don't know. I don't know if it would necessarily say it supported me. Like, it's also difficult, you know, like, uh, but uh, I do want to say it also helped me because when I finished the chapter, it was already like pretty perfectionistic good, but that also means that the feedback was delayed. But because I had written so much, uh, yeah, I already had a kind of a good idea where I wanted to take things. So there was already a lot of feedback before I had written a chapter. Yeah. What compelled you initially to start writing the book? Um, mostly because there was no book on sprint goals. This is the first one. And uh, yeah, uh, there are many books on product management. There are many books on Scrum. And I just felt like, yeah, I could write one of those books. But uh, I think it's very difficult to do, it, do a better job. And, and, and I was thinking for the first then at least you're the first, you know, <laughs> that already removes a lot of pressure. Yeah. I think that was kind of what appealed to me. It, it, there was something that really pulled me like, like, yeah, like this, this subject was intriguing to me. That was, the, and then if, if I find it intriguing, then I think there's a good chance to make other people feel that it's intriguing. Now, Mike Cohn approached you, right? And Mike Cohn is a massive established name in the industry. Uh, How was that? Yeah. So it was the publisher that approached me. Probably, I mean, I don't know exactly how it went down, right? But uh, I've been writing for like five years or something like that. And uh, yeah, apparently uh, they, the publisher and my cone are reading my articles. And yeah, they approached me, hey, do you want to write a book? And they wanted me to write a book about serious scrum. And I said, no, that's not the book I want to write. This is the book I want to write. And they, uh, yeah, they liked it. So I wrote an outline and everything. How, how did it affect you? Because I can imagine that you... Like if I just look at Zebia and all the people here, I'm I'm almost 100% certain that everyone has a level of imposter syndrome. Yeah. How did it affect? Uh, how did that play out with you? Yeah. So during the writing of the book, you start you start having these doubts. Like you're thinking, like, is this really good? Do I really have interesting things to say? Is anybody going to care? But the thing, like you said, because there were like there were people reading the book who were like kind of more like I mean I call I divide them like in grumpy cats and like dolphins, you know. <laughs> so there are people that more look like everything that you can do better, but there are other people who are more like positive and see all the good things in. And I had a good mix of my reviewers who did both. So uh, yeah, what really helped me were those dolphins, right? Like I already am pretty critical myself, but all those people that just kind of said, "Oh, I really love this chapter," and it's, uh, yeah, that really energized me and made me feel like, hey. Maybe there is something there. Maybe 
it's going to be a good book. And I needed that. But I think every person is different, right? Like every person has different challenges. But that really helped me a lot, that there also was positive feedback. What posed the biggest challenge to you in this whole writing endeavor? Yeah, the biggest challenge, I think, uh, me. <laughs> I'm the biggest challenge. Now, I mean, if you think about it, people are complex systems. And I always kind of sucked at school in the sense that I never did anything. Also, it continued in university. And then when writing the book, I started feeling like, oh, yeah, this is why I remember why I was so lazy at high school. <laughs> Do tell us more. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, so when I was in university, right, I was a typical student where I just start working one or two days before. And then and, and there were like a couple of subjects where I, that was not possible, unfortunately. So I had to work many months to pass them. But um, yeah, the, I suck at big things. If it's really big, it's daunting. I become paralyzed and I kind of give up already. And that that's how I am as a person. I'm like, and uh, yeah, I had to overcome that. Yeah. So... Summarizing that, you really look up against big, audacious goals. So you figured, let's write a book. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so how do you look back at the whole process? Yeah, I mean, if you look at so to the if you look at how much time I plan. So I I didn't tell this story, I think, to you. But when you sign a contract, a book contract, they 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 want a date, right? It's the same problem in software development. Before you start, they want a date. So. You know what I did? I thought it was pretty smart. Uh, I wasn't, right? But I'm just, I, I sure. worked for like for like a, a week or something on the book and I finished like 20%. The book was going to be around 250 pages. The classical planning and prediction, right? I made a burn down chart, like it's going to be around 250 pages. Yeah, so I hit almost none of the timelines. Like <laughs> I, I predicted six months. <laughs> the first timeline I did hit because I had to release two chapters. And you know why I hit that timeline? Because I finished those chapters before I signed the contract. <laughs> so yeah, so, yeah I, uh, it took more than three years. And I don't know, like, I guess that's also what the book is about. It's very difficult to plan and predict. And when you plan and predict like I did, you become very frustrated because you think, I said six months. And every month later, you're thinking, I suck. Like, I, <laughs> you know what I mean? And I think that's the main thing. I was treating it as a complicated problem where I think, hey, I can plan and predict and uh, yeah, I couldn't. What was the, the the most difficult thing to predict? Like, what's the what is that that you did not expect in this whole journey to pan out the way that it did? Yeah, I mean, I, for, I like I said, uh, I had forgotten who Ill, how ill-disciplined I was when it comes to these big things. So the main thing I did to fix that was very interesting. So I just decided I'm going to make it super small. Every minute, right? 15 minutes. That's it. That's all. But then I actually started 15 minutes and I would actually write for three hours sometimes because I just was so energized. That's kind of how I tricked myself. But yeah, might not work for everybody else. <laughs> how was the, How did you combine that? Because you're, you're working full time as well. You yeah. have a busy home life. You've got kids. You've got a wife. How did that work together? Yeah. So I think the biggest reason I could write a book is because of my partner, because we like, because as you know, like when you write a book, it takes three years, it drags on. Uh, we had a second kid. I didn't expect how much more difficult that was. <laughs> Speaking of audacious goals. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah. So she was a big help because basically during the night she did the kid, she did the breastfeed. I didn't do any of those things, but what I did do is write at night. Like I did help with the kids. I did write at night and, but that was incredibly tough. That was one of the biggest, but uh, yeah, that's the reason why it was possible. I think because her help. Pretty awesome. Yeah. I'm so curious. Yeah, go ahead. I'm curious, looking back, do you see any patterns to when you were your most productive or most creative when it came to taking a 
opaque idea and being able to crystallize it in words for the book? Any patterns or was it all over the place? Yeah, so I don't know. So like I said before, I think people are different. My biggest problem is never a lack of ideas. It's execution. Like I have too many ideas and uh, sometimes I would get stuck. Like I, I, I think the biggest problem is I, I would be my most productive when I felt there were no obstacles. That's kind of when I it didn't mean there were no obstacles, but when in my head, I had the feeling there were no obstacles. And then uh, I could just continue writing. And but then I would suddenly think, oh, wait, I've got four parts. How is this going to work? This chapter is in the right place. Oh, no, crash. <laughs> so how did awesome. you deal with these kind of things then during the night to keep up your energy levels as well? Because that is a tricky thing by itself. How do you keep three years of continuous development and writing going together with consulting kind of assignments? Yeah, I don't know. Like I, I kind of saw it like as a ketchup bottle. Like sometimes a lot comes out, sometimes very little. You know what I mean? I try to be uh, the biggest thing that helped me is kind of to be nicer to myself and just be like, yeah, this. Like I'm a human being. Like sometimes it a lot comes out. Sometimes I think that helped me the most. And yeah, like I said, the 15 minutes thing, like that really made a difference for me. Like the main thing is every person in this room is complex. Like they have their weird quirks, their weird behaviors. There are people out there, of course, that are probably, they can be very disciplined. Like I've heard that Henry Nieberg, like he writes, he literally like locks a month and he writes a book. Uh, it's wild. Yeah, that's what I heard. I don't know if it's true, right? But this is what I've heard. Well, I'm not that kind of person. <laughs> but yeah, I, that's the main thing. Like, you're a complex system to find out what works for you. And uh, if you have problems like I do with discipline, I mean, I don't have it for writing, but I do have it for writing a book. What's the difference? Yeah, because it's, you write an article in two or four hours and it's done. It's easy. Is you it do a lot. It's, it's for me, that's a complicated problem, not a complex problem. Isn't a, a book just a big collection of multiple articles? No, no. It isn't because there every chapter needs to be connected. Like it's kind of like it, in German, right? Like every every word is connected. Is like it has a specific order. You cannot just add a, a word at the end and it will still work like we do in Dutch or English. I think the same with writing a book. Like yeah, if you change the final chapter, you might have to change everything in the beginning. So you're dealing it's context, right? Like the context of a book is different than a blog article or a. a, a series of LinkedIn posts even. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, it, and there needs to be a red line in the book, right? You cannot just say like, hey, if, I mean, I've read many books. I have to be fair, right? Where you read the book and you see every chapter is great. And then the book ends and you're like, what did I read? Like a bunch of great chapters. Mm -hmm. And what was the red line? What's the message? I don't know. And then you're incredibly disappointed. I mean, that's a way of writing a book. That's not how I try to do it. So creating that consistency. How often did you revise the chapters that you wrote? Like looking back and, and where's the consistency? All the time, all the time. Is that where the three years went? <laughs> yeah, 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 maybe. I'm a perfectionist, right? Like <laughs> I always revised, every, I was always thinking like, how can I make the bridge better between the chapters and all these kind of things? How does the, the feedback with, uh, with such a large publishing company come in? Because I can imagine um, they are an established brand. Uh, they've yep. worked with the, the biggest writers in the industry. Yep. This is your first book that you just barely started writing. How does their feedback and the way that they work come across on you as a novel writer? I mean, I, I, I had an amazing editor. She gave really good feedback. But the main thing is sometimes I as well thought I don't agree and I'm not going to listen to the editor. And uh, I mean, uh, how can I say... I think that's, let me give you an example, right? The book starts with a story 
And actually the editor said, you shouldn't do that. You should first start like, this is what the book is going to be about. And I just thought, no, I don't want to do that. Like, I want it to be like a Tarantino movie. You know, it started with action and then you're like, what the hell happened? I want to know more. I might've been the wrong decision, but I felt like I don't, I really believe, like strongly believe you need to break a pattern and then you fit the pieces together and then people will be hooked much better. So these are kind of things where, yeah, we had disagreements, but I made a choice and we'll, but on the other hand, she also did a really good job saying, Hey, this is what makes the book really great. And this is what you should keep on doing. And yeah, there need to be good bridges between the chapters. So these kind of things. Do you want to tell the listeners more about the story to get them hooked? <laughs> so it's a story from my ch- childhood, actually. So as a childhood, uh, as a child, sorry, I was dropped uh, in Fleeland in the dark, a dropping. So basically a group of like, I don't know, five, six kids. We had to find our baywack to a farmhouse, but we were in Fleeland and we didn't know Fleeland. So... Yeah, uh, basically we started thinking, okay, it's dark. Where do we go? Hey, there's a high vantage point. Let's go there. And then when we were in the high vantage point, we thought, hey, there's a road. Let's, there are multiple roads. Let's take the biggest road. Maybe that will lead us to the center. And so the, the plan was shaped during the journey, right? And we, and we didn't arrive first, sadly, but we arrived second. But I think the main point of the story is this is kind of like software development. Like every step you take helps shape the way. Of course, you have a destination, but you don't cannot plan out all the steps. And uh, yeah, I try to use that explanation to explain that's how most companies don't work. Because actually you think, oh yeah, we have to achieve this. And then they go in the meeting room and they try to think, hey, what are all the steps, all the things we have to do? Uh, Oh yeah, so now we know it's going to take one and a half year. Okay, great. Now we're going to execute the plan. (laughs) And that's kind of what you shouldn't do. No, but I love that goal or not the goal, but the the whole storyline because it resonates with so many organizations that keep that fog of i'm not going to say fog of war but like the the whole i call it the fog of beforehand that one yeah and the unclarity that many organizations deal with yet they see this they recognize this but they don't do actively do sufficiently with this correct what makes in your experience what makes it so challenging for organizations to deal with these kind of issues well like i said right i told you how i approached the book I was writing a book on this topic and I made the same mistake. I was thinking like, yeah, it's complicated. I can predict. So it's very natural to us. And I think that's because in school and university, right? It's kind of like, here's the book, you read everything, you can get a 10, you can get a hundred percent or I think in Germany it's a one, but I mean, uh, yeah. So the main thing is that's not how most real life problems work. Like every step you take helps shape the way you discover what you have to do while you do the work. You cannot plan all the steps. And we're not trained adequately for that because that's not how school works. School works, here's all the information and you can pass everything. So now what's the next step for organizations after you've delivered this book? What can they do with it? Well, they can do, well, so here's the thing. I think the main thing I try to do is to give all these labels that you can enable conversation, right? I think that's the main thing. A lot of these concepts are not that new, I believe, but that you can talk about them, for example, by talking about, hey, you have the fog of beforehand, like before starting, there's a fog. And the only way to remove it is not by thinking or analyzing or talking, but by taking a step in the fog, doing something, the fog of speculation, right? Like too much thinking while there's this fog and you're going to inject the fog of speculation. There's going to be even more fog because you cannot see all the steps. So all these concepts, I think, enable the right conversations. Uh, so that's the main thing I hope that somebody reads the book and then thinks about, hey, now I can talk about management about these things and make them explain why, sorry, explain to them why a roadmap of one year with features on it and precise timelines is never going to work. 
I'm curious, looking at you, Jim, as well, you're working with corporate America, and I imagine that they have an even bigger fog of beforehand. What's your experience with that? Yeah, one of the the biggest impediments or patterns that I see that maybe are holding companies back is sprint goals, as an example, feel really simple. And they're like, well, that's so simple. Like, uh, So they equate the clear nature of what a sprint goal is conceptually with it's not going to make that big of a difference. But it has been the single most impactful thing to both of my biggest clients right now. Like when I have been able to work with teams and say, you know, because one of the things they asked me to do, Martin, is can you model good scrum for us or good Kanban? And I have a, I have a way of doing that. And I talked to them about it. And, but I warned them. I said, it might not look or feel in any given day or meeting much different than you think. But then when we look back, they're like, holy crap, we totally see how sprint goals are so impactful. And you you feel this sense of pride of achieving a goal and you see people collaborating and they're moving towards our goal instead of my work versus your work. And it's it's really easy for me to show those benefits to teams, but getting them to even see how something so simple looking or seeming can be that impactful is the biggest problem. So one of the questions I have for you is, can you tell a story, uh, you know, briefly of a time when a sprint goal or moving towards having goals in general made a massive difference? And then if you have any times where it didn't or led to something unexpected, I would, I'm sure our audience would love to hear that. Yeah, I've got a few stories. So actually, I was a big sprint goal skeptic, to be honest. Like, uh, I didn't believe in sprint goals at all. And the reason why it opened my eyes to sprint goals was because actually I was moved as a product owner to another team. And my old team, and I was this was in a big corporation, they said, you cannot help your old team anymore. And they didn't have a product owner. So they came to me and they were complaining like, oh, life is sh- shit. Like, everything's going terrible. What do we need to do? Blah, blah, blah. And I just said, well... Maybe you should try using sprint goals. And I didn't believe it was going to work. It was the only thing I had to <laughs> offer. And then I said, oh, here's how, kind of how it works. Like instead of saying, hey, we need, there are 10 things to complete, choose one thing, the most important thing, focus on that. And uh, yeah, make sure you have the relevant context that you can make decisions during the sprint without needing that very busy stakeholder who doesn't have time for you. And a few months later, uh, they came back to me and they said, we're super happy. Things are going great. And I was like, what the <laughs> hell happened here? <laughs> and, and, and I just and that's the moment where I decided, okay, like, okay, I maybe I'm wrong. Like, maybe there is something there. And then I started doing it myself. And uh, so this is my personal story. I actually joined a new team. I was moved to a team. And uh, basically there was a scrum master who said, Yeah, you need to uh, we need to do sprint zero, we need to plan everything, <laughs> we we need to make a vision, like all this stuff. And I said, uh, uh, okay, well, I want to try something else. We just talked to the stakeholders, asked them what's the one most important thing we have to address, and we're going to work on that. And there was a big silence. No, we can't do that. We need to do refinement, blah, blah, blah. We don't even know if it's going to work. I said, no, that's fine. We're going to work on that. One most important thing, and if we fail, it's my fault. Like, I'll take the blame. And so what we did, one ticket, a spike, that's it. We didn't even know we were able to pull it off. It was automating some kind of report, and I said, well, there are 12 reports, if you can automate one of them and show it works, great. You can pick the easiest one. I don't even care which one. And we actually succeeded. We had one report automated in two weeks. And that just showed mm-hmm. me how powerful it is. Like, 
uh, yeah, we're we're so scared of failing that we they were scared of trying new things. And I think sometimes it's okay to fail. Like in this case, what's the worst that can happen? After five days, we find out it's not going to fly. Well, then we do a new sprint planning, but then at least we know it immediately. How does leadership came to play in this whole situation? Uh, in this case, I was the one calling the shots and they trusted me. So, so you were a leadership? Well, I mean, in this case, they gave me a new team and they said, you know what, you can f- go figure out what matters and solve those problems. It was a big mess, to be fair. And uh, I did clean up things, but it, they gave me carte blanche. Sorry, what that's a biggest? huge difference yeah. that a lot of people maybe uh, don't have is you were given authority, account, you took accountability and you were given, you know, control over your you and your team's future. And I think one of the biggest objections I hear to, oh, Jim, that's why sprinkles aren't going to work is they usually can't see a common theme or the belief from someone outside the team is there's no way you can tell us you're only going to do one thing. And I think you gave us a great example of this is you, you said you're going to set an example of writing 15 minutes a day. Many times you wrote far more than that. That's my experience with sprint goals is yes, it might sound like one thing, but most teams, once they build that muscle of delivering one thing, one turns into one bigger thing and one bigger thing or multiple valuable things. And it's, I'm curious if you hear objections to sprint goals and if so, what they are and if they're the similar, similar ones are different. Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest objection is we have three things we need to do. What, what, what are you talking about? We're going to do one thing at a time. That's not how it works. That's the biggest objection, I think. And the way I always try to tackle it is saying, look, we can work on three things at once. We're going to deliver all three of them later, and you won't have control of what gets delivered first. Or we choose. That means you have control, and we decide what gets delivered first. And by the way, all three things will also be delivered sooner. What do you want to do? And very often they will go for the approach I pick. But I think it's a stakeholder management thing. Like I think uh, we're so it's so appealing to have the illusion of progress. That's what I call it. Like we're working on three things. Every stakeholder is happy because their thing is moving. Even though it's moving at a glacier speed, it's moving, right? They're happy. But that's not what we should be aiming for. And I think the biggest challenge, the reason why this causes so much problems is because our estimates are wrong. And that those three things are actually maybe six things, you know what I mean? In terms of amount of work. And then we get high work in progress, we kill flow, and that means we're screwed. And we're just working very hard to deliver very little. And that's, I think, the key thing to yeah, explain to, to uh, leaders. Yet, if you explain it like this, it sounds super easy. Yeah. It sounds like common sense, but like we discussed in the car yeah. uh, riding over here, common sense seems to be one of the least common things these days what makes it so hard to bring that common sense back into leadership i I mean let's be honest right organizations are complex there are many departments they all have different budgets different interests so the fact you're unable to get reach agreement is often a symptom of this organizational structure and these competing interests and the main thing is uh, you solve that uh, with stakeholder management and i often was a product owner which makes my life easier in that way because I am the one talking to the stakeholders. I have one-on-one relationships with them. So I could, how do you say, that puts me in a very good position to have these conversations because I understand what they're trying to achieve, what they care about. And I think that's the main thing uh, 
where it makes my life easier because then I can frame it in ways that they care about. But I also have to be fair, right? I didn't win, if I may call it win, every kind of these battles. Sometimes I also lost. I wasn't able to convince them. But that's also the way it is, right? It's not easy. I think nobody has 100% success rates. Tell us about the biggest lost conversation that you had and how you deal with it. And what do you mean by law? Like the biggest argument I didn't win? Yes. Or win. I hate the term winning, right? But I didn't sure. convince them. Let's put that way. That way. Um, I need to think a little bit about that. So, yeah, I once worked at a company doing a road mapping process, also described in the book, <laughs> where basically they were doing road mapping uh, for like one year and and every quarter we never succeeded like, there were like 20 things on there. We completed three things. And then when we needed help from another team, we didn't get it because all the roadmaps were team level roadmaps. So I've literally like probably like 10 times been through this cycle, seen this, and I was not able to convince the CTO there that this is a bad idea. And at some point I just told him, look, I'm going to make a now next later roadmap. I cannot convince you. You're not listening to me. So the only thing I have left is to rebel. <laughs> and he was incredibly frustrated with me, have to be fair, right? But but the thing is, I, I that's that that was that was maybe a moment where I didn't succeed. And uh, but ultimately he yeah, left the company and then uh, I also left. So I, I don't know what happened afterwards. <laughs> so the company won. Yeah. You both left. <laughs> and now they can do whatever they want. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I don't think they've improved their situation. For, uh, so. Well, that sounds like a them problem. Um, <laughs> behavior like this commonly leads to vanity metrics. So metrics are being delivered. They're very easy to game. Like the common ones, like comparing velocity across yeah. teams. Stuff that doesn't really add anything, except it makes you look nice as a, yeah. as a manager or Spread- whomever is reporting. Spreadsheet victories. Ex- spreadsheet victories. I love that. Jim just mentioned in the comment, uh, talking about, you mentioned, uh, let's be honest. Um, being honest is incredibly hard, especially in big corporate organizations. Uh, it's a nice remark that you made. Well, uh, usually it's not about being dishonest. It's remaining blissfully ignorant <laughs> on purpose. What's your experience with that? Uh, what Can you explain what you mean by blissfully ignorant? I mean, I know what blissfully ignorant means, but maybe elaborate. Well, a bit it's not about, about someone being dishonest. And being deliberately um, uh, lying or deliberately undermining someone's activities. It's, I've heard many leaders tell me, like, I don't ask questions if I don't think I'm going to like the answer, or I don't want to ask about this because I know what the answer is. And, you know, in the, in America, we have the idiom, right? The elephant in the room, or there's so many of those, like, and I, one of the things I get to do and probably you get to do as a, as a consultant is we get to say, why are we all not talking about the big giant elephant in the room? Like all those projects that are green, you all know they're not green, right? And that they're not on their roadmap and they're not going to be delivered on time. Why are we not talking about the actual thing? And that's kind of what I mean by blissfully ignorant because transparency is not comfortable yeah. for a lot of people. And sprint goals make things transparent. Yeah. So I agree with you. I I've, I mean I don't think it's they're 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 being malevolent, right? They're intentionally aware of that that like what we're doing is suboptimal. No, like, but what I do think is that saying no to things now that that we don't like that. We have this giant loss aversion. Right? So we have ten things we want to work on. So the option is say no now, which means for sure it's not going to be done, or we can just say yeah, 
it might work. We're going to shuffle these 10 things forwards. And yeah, then that sting is felt like many months later, we can cover it up with politics. You know what I mean? So yeah, I don't know. And success, success tends to breed that overconfidence. You know, um, one of the examples that, you know, it's repeated itself a lot is when I suggest maybe an alternative way of doing something like you were doing in your story, suggesting a roadmap or sprint goals or something. People who are at successful companies or in successful teams who are being lauded as impactful leaders are like, hey, what what I've been doing is working for me, clearly. So why would I need to do anything different? And that's a hard sell because it's kind of loss aversion is retaining what you currently have, whether that's money or success or political capital or organizational authority feels worse than going after new value, new and Usually this realization comes way too late and only when Companies are starting to go on a decline. As well, ah, shit, we need to we need to start running right now. No, you should have started running two years ago. But then it's too late. Yeah, but I think that's kind of human nature, right? Like people suddenly they feel like oh they get like pain in their chests or the doctor says something, some value is off, and then suddenly they hit the gym, right? Like yeah, I don't know. Like sometimes we need this trigger something to really go wrong, or we realize hey the status quo isn't good enough. We need to change things, and yeah, I don't know. I think it's kind of human nature. Are there any things in your book or concepts where you were like, this is one of my darlings I have to kill and I would have loved to put this in, but it didn't make the book? I need to think about that one. So I don't know. I didn't kill any darlings. And I think, I mean, of course I've left stuff out, but uh, how can I say it wasn't never, I never, uh, how do you say, never left out something I really loved. Yeah. I didn't have that problem. Mastering Agility only works with organizations aligned with our values, and that's exactly why we are excited to work with our sponsor. Scrum Match is the free platform for professionals run by professionals. On Scrum Match, true Scrum Masters get hired by companies serious about their popular framework. The awesome people behind this platform have decades of experience, among them a professional Scrum trainer for Scrum.org. They have interviewed, trained, and coached hundreds of like-minded people, and they use this exact experience to make you stand out from the crowd and help you get in touch with companies looking for true Scrum Masters. So go to scrummatch.com and sprint to your dream job. If this was a Marvel movie, what would be in your bonus content? Like if you got another three minutes of the Martin Avengers movie, what would be in that I love the rephrasing. So the main thing is that happened is after I finished my book, I wrote a lot of uh, like I read a lot of books, so I had a lot of ideas of like, oh, I could have told told this story differently. So definitely, like, so so some some things I would have done, right? I mean, I don't know for sure, but I, I mean, um, I read the books Creativity Inc. about Pixar, right? I I find it super fascinating that basically uh, the CEO of Pixar was saying every movie we make sucks during development, like. Toy Story, the first movie where they showed the storyboards. It was so terrible that Disney shut it down. Like they said, this is terrible. You have to rewrite the script. And then you might think, yeah, that's their first movie, right? And they have the storytelling recipe. It works really well. They figured it all out. No, absolutely not true. Like the movie Up, the first movie Up, how it was conceived was like a, a castle in the sky with an old man and two grumpy sons. That was up. Well, if you've seen the final movie, it's completely different. And I think that's the main thing. Like these stories really emphasize for me is that 
our plans, initial plans suck and we need to have a really good process of, of unsucking the movie, right? How, how can you make it good? Discovering it. And you see this as well in gaming. Like, and these are all stuff that I would have loved to tell about a bit more, but I only like had the realization afterwards. Up was such a good movie. Yeah. It made, that, that's one of the first movies that made me cry like a three-year-old three girl. Uh, but the, the, the example of uh, Creativity Inc., which is a really good book, I really like how yep. um, the writer goes through the development phases that they have, how they rapidly learn yep. and kill their ideas as soon as possible. Exactly. And the same thing happens in gaming. That's fascinating. The same thing happens in gaming. Like, I literally had a book, Blood, Sweat, and Pixels, that said every game is delayed at least once. Half-Life, one of the games, greatest games of all time, delayed three times. Like, uh, Zelda games, delayed. Like, yeah, I just find it fascinating. And then we, and then when you can't enter corporations, they're like, yeah, here's the plan. You have one year, finish it. Yeah. I don't believe in that. The new Mario game, they did it differently. The, uh, Super Mario uh, Wonder, I think it's called. It's a really big success. You know what they did? Prototype phase, no deadline. They just said, you have like limited time for the prototype phase. As, and then when we think it's good enough, then we're going to go to development. The game is brilliant and it's going to break records. Like, yeah. How do you sell this concept to stakeholders? Yeah. Like, They have a certain expectation of when they want to have their, their game delivered and usable in their hands yeah so what what pixar does really well is they have this brain trust like they watch their movies like every three months and they really like they look at the movie and you give notes to the director as well is, is it good enough like i think that's the biggest question and how do we know it's good enough because at the end of the day we could release something in one year like half-life could also have been released but will it ha would it have made money is it good and how do we know that that's where we should invest our energy but it's much easier to talk about velocity or what is going to be done in one year because that's very predictable and measurable. But that's not going to, that's not what's going to bring in money. Like if, if I tell you a game, you will not be able to tell me, was it delivered on time or not? You, yeah. True. The, I, I love that you mentioned this story because the takeaways that I took from Creativity Inc. and, and that is as long as the director and the creative minds behind the movie kept coming to the table and seeking feedback and internalizing that feedback. The budget kept coming. The timeline was fine. It's when somebody said, no, I don't want feedback. I'm not going to change. I'm not going to, I want to either release a crappy movie or, you know, they didn't want to trust that, that process of a Pixar. That's what got people, you know, sideways with leadership, I guess. And I think that's a key takeaway is balancing ownership, which you owned the roadmap of your book. You owned the creative output of your book, but you solicited feedback. And so you had the authority to tell people no. And I'm sure you had to at times because not all feedback is a gift. <laughs> and, but you also, I assume, because you got a book to market, um, had to balance the needs of the stakeholders and the budget and, and all those things. So if you look at my book, it's definitely over budget, over time. <laughs> is, it, <laughs> is it good? Like, I leave that up to you. But what I can say, one thing I can say is what the editor told me is she was reading the chapters, right? And she's, she was said, the most I care about is that it's good. That's the and, and like, as long as I can see that's good and it's going in a good direction, then I don't really care about the timeline. And you have to, and even though in the contract it says, if you're over time, they can hire a ghostwriter finish your book and pay that ghostwriter out of your royalties. <laughs> so that's what it says in the little, uh, yeah. The letters. Small letters. Yeah. yeah. It, 
quick question from the audience where they post mortem and pixar so what happened there uh post mortem and pixar like um so at pixar like of course in their first movie they didn't have this brain trust process but i think what they really do really well is every step they look at the feedback like how like they have an objective poop a group of people takes a look at the movie, gives feedback. That's the primary concern. And then if necessary, they will pull the plug or say rewrite because the most thing they're worried about is if we release a crappy movie, it really hurts their brand because they have a really strong brand, kind of like Disney, you know, like, well, Disney is not as strong as it used to be, but they also had the same kind of brand where every movie was great and that's very precious and they want to preserve that. And I think that's the main thing that they've evolved, like, uh, and as well, when you read the book, it's really all about psychological safety, like allowing for mistakes. Um, yeah, that's the culture. So if you read the book about Pixar, it isn't about process, or you know what I mean? Or you have to do it this way, or the storytelling recipe that you see on LinkedIn all the time. It's much more about how do we create an environment where we look at each other, we can look at a movie, we can look each other in the eyes, like how do we make it great? And that the director can take that feedback because it's not easy. Can you imagine the pressure of a studio like Pixar, because beauty is in the eyes of the beholder, right? Yeah. And they have to satisfy millions of stakeholders at once. I think it's incredibly difficult. Like, I couldn't imagine, right? Like, yeah, it's a great creative endeavor. And yeah, how do you know it's good enough? Like, that's the, the same question you have when you ship a book. How do you know? For sure, you don't. I mean, they as well had some movies that were duds, right? Or not as good as they could be. So there's no certainty. And if there is, then somebody is going to yeah, make a lot of money. <laughs> I like all these metaphors in your book. And one of them is on a submarine. Yeah. Tell us more about that. Yeah. So basically, uh, this is about David Marquette. So I don't even remember like the submarine that uh, like was underwater and uh, the tragic accident. So David Marquette was actually on CNN explaining like, hey, like based on the current information, they have 1% chance of survival. Like it was a terrible accident, but but... He wrote a book, Turn the Ship Around. It's a really great book. And what I really find interesting about that book is it actually tells the story of how he was a captain of a submarine, like the, uh, and they moved him to another submarine, and they gave him six months to prepare the whole crew. And what's interesting is in the old submarine, they followed like the traditional command and control style. So how that worked is he would give orders, and it meant as well that you would need to know how everything in the submarine worked, right? Because if you know how everything works, then you can give orders. So the main thing, what happened is, so he was on this new submarine where he didn't know how it worked. And then basically uh, they did an exercise where they, um, uh, how you say, the battery was running out and he needed to move fast. And he, and he thought, okay, I'm going to add more pressure. Let's increase the speed of the submarine so that the battery drains faster. And then they did that and there was a silence. And why was that? It was because there was no option to change the speed of the submarine on that submarine. And he didn't know. So he kind of looked ridiculous. And then he asked them, like, why did you follow my order if it wasn't even possible? Well, because you told us to. And then he realized this is never going to work because I, in six months, I'm never going to know the submarine. So long story short, what he did was he actually moved to like a, a leader leader model where he actually gave people decision-making authority. And he, he said, like, you make the decisions, you tell me what happens, but you do so by saying, I intend to do this. And this is what's called intent-based leadership. And I think that's incredibly important because if you have provide people with intent, like, hey, this is what we're trying to achieve, this is why it matters, then they can make decisions, they can change plans as necessary, they won't need to ask for orders. And I think that's what empowered teams are about. Like empowered teams need to be able to make decisions without needing help from others outside the team as much as possible. And that's what, uh, yeah, that's what I liked about that story.
And just just for context, there was one command that he would keep for himself, and that was when uh, torpedoes would be would be launched that would result in the death of other people. He would keep that uh, only command to himself, and all the other decisions on the entire submarine were distributed to uh, the crew, which is about what was it, two hundred, two hundred fifty? Yeah, under under fifty people, yeah. I think roughly, which is pretty wild. Yep, in our businesses, we still struggle to empower teams of six people. Yeah, true. So now what? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, 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 I think that, that, that what it boils down to is how we do our planning, right? Like if you tell people to deliver features, it's very difficult. So for example, a book, what do you want to achieve with the book? That's a way more difficult question than saying, hey, you need to finish 250 pages in six months, right? But, but we need to be talking about what do we want to achieve? And I think that's the main thing that makes it difficult. If you want to have empowered teams, that means you need to talk about what are we trying to achieve? Why does it matter? What's the relevant context? Leaders find those conversations very difficult. And then instead it's like, yeah, this is difficult. Okay, so let's go for velocity or sh- this feature should be done in six months because then at least we can talk about it. Do you see any difference in educational level when it comes to understanding this complexity and uncertainty with people working in the teams and actually performing the work versus people who are in the ivory tower. So yes, I do see a difference with the teams doing the work and the people in the ivory tower, but I can say that I've seen slight decks from the big <clears throat> consultancies. So either they are intentionally lying. <laughs> like I'm really talking like the really the big ones, yeah. right? Like not like say, yeah, like the, yeah, like the, how do you say? The, the What's McKin- wrong with us? The, no, the McKinsey's, the BCG's, right? Those companies. I don't want to place XCB in a bad light. I would really talk specifically to those. I've seen slide decks from them where I was like, this is never going to fly. Yeah. And I can't, I mean, I can't believe that you're selling this. Like, yeah. But didn't it sell because yeah. the content was bad or because you know that the quality that they're delivering is bad, except it speaks to management? It speaks to management. It's exactly what they're looking for. So in that sense, I get it, right? So basically they're telling the story like, hey, like you can have six pack abs in five minutes if you follow these 10 steps. You've got to do that. <laughs> and that's kind of, uh, so for example, let's say you do, a tra- let me give you an example, right? Transformation. Like they basically said, you need to follow these 12 steps. You need to move to these kind of teams, blah, blah, blah. And then you're going to be a success. I don't believe that's how it works. That's kind of like going for the hole in one when you're wearing blindfolds. You don't know what the hell is going on. It doesn't work that way. <laughs> nice. So Yeah. Jimmy had a yeah, question. Yeah, I, I mean, I, there's so many things to pull out of the the David uh, Marquet story, but to to bring it back to sprint goals, um, what I what I was thinking about as you were talking and telling those stories is a quote by Leonard Bernstein, which is to achieve great things, two things are needed: a plan and not quite enough time. And I think that is one of the hidden powers maybe if you will of sprint goals but i'm curious if you have any thoughts on this idea of deadlines in agility or in scrum or with sprint goals in general as being a good thing a bad thing or because i personally work well with the deadline if you give me a great idea and sunder and i had lots of great ideas when we were hanging out over over the over drinks or around the fire but without a deadline or some sort of intrinsic drive it's very quickly to put those down so what do you what do you think uh, bringing that back to sprint goals yeah i don't know right like if i can go back to my book again i had a deadline for six months i didn't need it you know what i mean like i don't think it's the deadline per se like i do think that what really helps is 
uh, sprint goals are tangible steps for, and you, and, and, and like you take a step and in two weeks you inspect and adapt, you see how you did. So I do think that works really well. And then, uh, yeah. And I mean, let's be fair, right? Like whenever you do something, you do, you do have to forecast timelines. You do need to. So I do get that, but I, I think it's much more important the transparency on the progress to what, what you're doing than having this timeline of six or seven months, mm-hmm. because yeah. I've been there far too often when the timeline is six or seven months and then it's finished in two or three years, like my book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like yeah. the deadline's there, but it's because they're actually not taking a look at how much progress we're making and they're realizing, hey, we're doing something completely wrong. And this is why it's taking three times as long. What do we do? That, those are the conversations we should be mm-hmm. having. Uh, but those are often let me, let me not see. had because we're so oh, focused please. on the timelines instead of the actual problem. We've got a question in the audience here yeah. as well. Sure. Oh, please. Yeah. Hi. So I'm Marcel. Hey, Marcel. Hi. Um, what I notice when writing articles is that I can have this genius idea, and then once I start writing them down, I think, yeah, they're kind of crap. Yeah. When I review them, um, do you recognize this? And do you have an example of something that you changed your mind about? Or thought, well, that works totally different. Okay. So I'm hearing, I mean, I think I'm hearing two different questions, right? Like, so the, the, the first question is, do I have the feeling like when I write something that it sucks? And the first, second question is, again, it suck. And the other question is like, uh, so when I, did I change my mind to something? I thought it was great, but now I think it sucks. Right. Yeah. I don't, so I've written quite some st- articles. So, so What's interesting is I went through my older articles one day just to see like how much did my viewpoints tra- change. And what's interesting is that for many articles I've written, they didn't change that much, to be honest. Like there were, uh, I don't remember from the top of my there was some stuff I've written about velocity, where, which I didn't agree with anymore. Like, for example, that you want to have more stable velocity and these kind of things. Those are the main, they were but not big things. That was what surprised me. Like they, I, I didn't change, I don't know if that's a good thing. <laughs> For example, I didn't write an article that I didn't like sprint goals, right? Uh, if I would have done that, then yeah, that uh, definitely would have changed my mind. But no, not big things, to be honest. Mm. So, so what changed about Could you move a little bit closer to the mic? Yeah. So what changed about philosophy? Yeah, so so basically, initially when I started, I had so I had like scrum training where they said more velocity is better, predictability is better, more velocity is more value. So that was kind of what I was thinking. And if you see my writing, like literally like the first articles, you see some of that stability thinking in there uh, and that more velocity is better. But yeah, I, I completely changed my mind on that. Like you can write a book in 200 pages and it's amazing. You can write a book in 500 pages and nobody wants to read it. Like it's not about the number of pages. I think uh, you got me into writing for Serious Scrum after our first uh, podcast recording as well. And what I noticed with that, my biggest learning point from that is every single idea has been written on is your unique perspective that resonates with the user. And it's the way that you write your writing style that makes it very attractive for people to, to, to read. Um, so I learned to keep these kind of things to as close to my personal style as much as possible, because then it's going to stick with people. So don't worry about it sucking or don't worry about being original. You're not going to be original. Like I'm not, I mean, if you look at my book, it's not that original. Like if you know all the stories, the only thing I did is made some connections in a very obvious way. And that's my book. But a lot of the concepts in there are not that original. And what I want to say is don't worry like you said, right? Like most important thing is when you write, inject your perspective, your experience, like your viewpoint, and it's going to be original. 
just purely because you have a different way of looking at the world. You care about different things than I do and have different stories to tell. Okay, so one one more question, if that's okay. Yeah, sure, of course. What was your goal for writing this book and how did you achieve that goal? Um, so my goal for writing this book was basically when I was writing, before I was writing the book, I was kind of like floating the idea and people literally said, uh, huh, like you're writing a book on sprint goals. How can you write a whole book on sprint goals? That's what people thought. And I was, my goal is that if people read it, they will now say, duh, like why didn't anybody do this earlier? That's my goal. Did I achieve it? Um, how can I say? I'm, I hope so, but it's very difficult to say, right? Like, like I mean, I get positive messages, but I do have to say the negative messages, I don't get so much. People are not going to write to you, I hate your book. They will write to you. They will do it in a review, but they will not write you personally, I hate your book. <laughs> talking about it. Yeah. yeah, that's a win, right? Yeah, good. Yeah, true. How do these negative reviews affect you? I'm a perfectionist. You might you already know this. I hate negative reviews. I take it very personal. But the, the thing of the matter is what I'm trying to learn is it's never good. It's never perfect. There's always going to be mess and ugly chips. And that's like in little nicks. It, it's fine. But it's a personal struggle. Would you deal with that differently if you would be writing a new book? Speaking of which, is there a new book? <laughs> There's no new book at the moment. No, I don't know. I don't think so, to be honest. Like, I'm going to turn 40 this year. And... Uh, I remember like the, the first time I didn't get a 10 in the test and I cried. So uh, <laughs> it's, uh, I've come a long way. Like I didn't get that many 10s. So uh, I mean, uh, but it's my nature and maybe it's the way it was brought up, but I don't think it's ever going to change. But I do my best to be a little bit more gentle towards myself. Nice. We've got three minutes left. Are there any questions uh, remaining from either our virtual audience or the audience over here? Can there be feedback? Oh, yeah, you can, or you can use this one because apparently that one isn't really working well. So use this one. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it's not really a question as much, but I'm a scrum master. So I read it as if like, I want a product owner like this, <laughs> <laughs> um, which is a bit weird because I think there was even a part where you mentioned about that scrum master who asked for a sprint zero and you were like, I'm against that. I mean, I find that tension quite curious of, yeah. Um, like even though we're all striving for the same thing, actually, like yeah. the way I read this is this speaks so much to me. Yeah. And likewise, I would imagine to, to a product owner, like there's something along the lines of, um, like the book itself is very uh, humble. It speaks of a humble goal, but it's, it's very humble that it is almost like my buddy is just saying, you know, how we can do things together, and it, it, it makes perfect sense. I think in that sense, to me as a scrum master, um, I think if you had, um like maybe advice specifically yeah. for scrum masters how to maybe be able to think this way as much as they can from like a product owner thinking that way uh, yeah because i don't see that happening as much it's either like one or the other yeah uh, trying to pull yeah to the right direction so to say so for me it's a difficult question to answer because i do see it's not happening right and 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 it, and and an interesting observation, which someone else like called out on my book. What's very interesting is I didn't realize this, but in my book, I'm not talking about product owners or scrum masters at all. Like I don't talk about them. I just talk about the team because I don't really care who does it. Like that's for me. I mean, in the end of the day, their accountabilities as long as. So the main thing I really would hope is how do you say at the end of the day, agile is a means to an end, right? Like, and, and we, and, and 
a good product manager understands agile very deeply, deeply and a good product owner as well. And what makes me sad very often, there's a lot of conflict and, and where that comes from, it's, I've seen the conflict as well, right? Because I've had conflict with Scrum Masters because they're really focused on the process. They were saying, you have to do it this way. We cannot make changes during the sprint. We have to do a sprint zero. We have to do this. Well, I had a very different perspective. And that's where my biggest friction comes from. But I don't know. What is your experience? That's made me the follow-up question because you apparently have uh, maybe... So what I also do see, a lot of product owners, they are very busy in way too many meetings. And they have, yeah, how do you say... A lot of them have very big egos, very strong opinions, and yeah, then there's not a lot of collaboration. So the main thing I would like to say is Scrum Masters are generally great at collaboration and facilitation. I mean, a good Scrum Master at least. That's what they need to get better at. Like, they don't need to know everything. They need to be able to facilitate really well. And that's I'm not a great facilitator, but for a product owner, I'm pretty okay. <laughs> and I think that's the biggest difference. I think uh, like fo- get them to focus more on the collaboration and not like... David Marquette, like when he was first in the submarine, giving orders and I know everything because that's never going to produce an empowered team. And I think there's a lot of agreement that whether it's product management, empowered teams or scrum, like self-managing teams or self-organizing, that's that's what's going to make the biggest difference. So that's what we should be working towards together. Hope it answers your question. <laughs> I'm getting my voice back. Hold on. Oh, I'm sorry. Let me get the... <laughs> Yes, that works. How does that relate, like being humble in your goals? How does it resonate with organizations that usually are super ambitious in whatever they want to achieve? Well, it's more about being humble with your plans. You don't have to be humble with your goals. Like I do think so, if you, for example, look at Elon Musk, he has very audacious goals, very big goals. And I think that can work really well if you want to radically innovate, right? You really, because you're making a very big constraint uh, and then you have to make very innovative choices or it's not going to work. But if you want to polish and improve things, then you need to have humble goals, right? Like I believe that's way more motivating than every sprint hearing, we didn't succeed, we didn't succeed, kind of like me with my book. It's very demotivating. <laughs> so yeah, I think it depends on what you're trying to achieve. Like, uh, But I think if you really want to innovate, then you need to have some kind of constraint or very strong goal because otherwise you're just going to go for some local optimization and you want to do something radical. So you need to say, hey, we don't want to improve 10%. We want to improve 10 times. What do we do? It's a very different question. You, you're continuously repeating yourself when it comes to uh, not achieving your own. I'm sorry, I'm repeating myself. No, that's, that's <laughs> fine. But the point is, ultimately, even though you're saying don't have these kind of goals because you're not achieving them, you did achieve the book which is a big accomplishment in and by itself. So even though you're not making your own sprint goals, ultimately that down the line, you're making progress on a very big audacious goal. Correct. Yeah. And that's what, that's actually the key thing I did differently. I was focused on my progress, like realizing like my failings, what I can do better instead of thinking, oh, I need to do five pages this week. Like that was not the problem. The problem is like, why am I not doing it? And what can I do, do to make it happen? How can I make one page of progress? Because yeah, five pages was not happening. Looking at the time, do we have any remaining last questions? No. Yeah. Thank you. Um, If you have a team that doesn't have, uh, that doesn't use sprint goals yet, what would be your 15% solution to start tomorrow with? Yeah. 
Um, so the main thing I would do is just see, look at what they're currently working on, see if there's something that we can find some cohesive, like something that, uh, how do you say, that the different backlog items have in common and try to set the goal related to that. Like, and it can could even be that it's not a, how do you say, more an output-based goal, you know what I mean? But at least that there's some flexibility on scope during the sprint. That's, I think, the simplest thing to start with. And then the next step is, okay, right, we're living this feature, but what we're trying to achieve. So I think that will be the, the simplest thing I'd start with. Like, hey, what can we kind of group together as a logical thing? Okay, thanks. Thank you. Jimmy had a question as well that may end up in a rabbit hole. So let's see. Oh, let's no. just probe and see where this goes. If it's going to be a rabbit hole. I hope there are no foxes short. in the rabbit hole. <laughs> All my questions could be rabbit holes, but um, the question that was just asked is great. And to add to it, the most common objection I hear is our team is a group of people. How can we have one goal when many of us or maybe a lot of them won't contribute in any way to that goal? So... I'm very pragmatic. So the way I see it, a team is a group of people working toward a common goal. So if you don't have a common goal, you don't have a team. And that's cool, right? But then, 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 then I also would say you don't need Scrum because Scrum is about a team working towards a common goal. So the main thing I'd say is if you don't have a team working towards a common goal, and it's not something you can or want fix, there can be very like, so let me give you some examples, right? Let's say you're a component team and you're serving five teams. That's something you could fix, but maybe you can't fix it, Right. So you have to serve these five different teams and they want five different things at the same time. It's going to be very difficult to set a goal. Then don't do it because basically you're delivering it, like this, this stuff, manage the flow. You could do Kanban. You can also do Scrum, but then think your sprint goals are not going to work. Another example is uh, when you have a product which is very late in the product life cycle, you're doing all these small improvements in various areas. You're going to sunset it. Sprint schools might also be difficult because you're working on 10 different things at the same time. If it doesn't work, 100% don't do it. agree like, with you. That's, that's simple. But I do think that those are more symptoms of your situation than the fact that sprint goals don't work. I've got someone who uh, very eagerly jumped on the, the question of <laughs> seat. I, I, uh, I was listening to you saying, well, if you, if you have five different things that you're working on, you cannot get to one goal to satisfy those things. I still think you can set yourself a goal, but more set yourself a goal. How can we improve as a team to satisfy these five things? True, true. So you, you, yeah, basically you switch your goals to a more meta level or more collaboration level. Yeah, but I think you should always do that, right? Like whether, like you should always have this meta level, how can you improve regardless like of, of whether you do Kanban or Scrum, like, yeah, but you, yeah, I agree with you. Yes, of course, that's always something you should be doing. Jim, did that answer your question sufficiently? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it doesn't surprise me that we see that completely the same, which is many teams that I run across are not real teams. They're groups of people who work near each other, sit near each other, work, report to the same manager, but they have no common goal. Um, I, I guess if there was one last thing I could slip by the goalie here right at the end is, are you okay with ambiguous sprint goals or do you are you in favor of more specific goals where it's more binary? Yes, we met that, or no, we didn't. Because I I ask this question of a lot of people in the industry, and I've gotten many many different answers. I'm just curious where you come down on that. 
What is an ambiguous sprint goal like for you? Because are you saying that it's unclear what we're trying to achieve or what is? Well, let, you elaborate yeah. So let me give you two examples. Let's say Ironic that I'm asking this to be specific. <laughs> sure. So let's say you have a sprint goal that says we will improve the responsiveness of the checkout page versus an alternative goal, which is we will improve the responsiveness of the, of the checkout page to re less than 20 milliseconds. Are you okay with the first goal? Are you okay with the second goal? If you like, what would you say to a team that's struggling with that type of challenge? I do think it's important to be specific because the kind of solutions that you're going to be uh, considering if you want to achieve like uh, 50 milliseconds or 200 millisecond improvements are going to be very different. So I do think it matters. Um, but how can I say like, I don't think that a sprint goal, right, could be like improve this performance, right? Like you have a label. Uh, you don't need to talk about the 200 milliseconds. You understand what I mean? As long as there's a clear label to refer to what you're doing. But I do think it's important to understand, hey, what are we trying to achieve? And yes, sometimes it can be difficult. But if you leave it out in the open, then what are we striving for? What is good enough? Mm -hmm. Then it becomes very vague. And, and yeah, I think it's... I'd rather have that we're transparent, that we're trying to achieve 200 milliseconds, that we only re achieve 100 milliseconds, and that we don't be transparent, and then we maybe still re achieve the same thing, and then at least we know, hey, well, like we didn't achieve as much. Do we want to spend more time on it or not? Yeah, mm -hmm. I'm more in favor of specific. Cool, thanks. All right, let's start wrapping this up because yes. we're an hour in, exactly. Um, looking at people at home, if you want to be here in these kind of sessions as well, we will be doing this more in, in the future. Right now, after this conversation, we're going to have a drink. Sounds great. Jim, thank you for being here. Virtual audience, thank you for being here. Obviously, a massive thank you for you guys to you guys for being here. Uh, as this was the first time we did the session like this in this format, uh, again, we'll be doing this more often. Keep an eye out on uh, meetup.com for these kind of sessions. Martin, thank you very much for being here. Again, massive congrats on the release of the book. Thank you for having me. Thank you for organizing this. Thank you very much, Xavier. That is all for today. Thank you for listening. If you liked this episode, let us know by hitting that like button, share it with friends and colleagues, sharing a message on LinkedIn, joining our warm and welcoming Discord community, or attend recordings as a virtual audience. You can find all the relevant links in the show notes. We hope you'll tune back in for the next episode of the Mastering Agility podcast.